Hello, Richard Lane here with the Lancet podcast on Friday, April 27th. Last weekend, over April 21st and 22nd, saw the hosting of the Lancet Asia Forum in Singapore. This concerns cancer management in the Asia-Pacific region. In a moment, I'll be talking to the editor of the Lancet Oncology and key organiser of the meeting, Dr. David Collingridge. And we'll be hearing from Professor Sir Michael Rawlins of the National Institutes of Health and Clinical Excellence here in the UK, who gave the closing address at that meeting. Before that, here are some highlights from The Lancet dated April the 28th to May the 4th. Autopsies are vital for establishing cause of death, advancing medical research and training young doctors, despite religious, social and legal issues concerning their use. So conclude the authors of a review in this week's issue. I'm talking to Dr. Julian Burton from the University of Sheffield in the UK. Dr. Burton, thanks for talking to The Lancet. You're one of the authors of this review. My first impression reading the review is that autopsy almost seems to have become rather unfashionable, and certainly you talk about a decline in the latter half of the 20th century, not just in the UK, but, but worldwide. Why is that, do you think? It's certainly true that the autopsy has suffered a major decline in rates, not only in the UK, but, but throughout the world. In Sheffield, for example, we've seen a decline in our overall autopsy rates from around 45% to less than 15% in the last 30 years. And our experience is mirrored by those centres around the world in both the developed and the developing world. I think the autopsy has become unfashionable and for a variety of reasons. It's become less acceptable and less well thought of in the minds of the public, in the minds of uh, our clinical colleagues in wards and general practice-based medicine, in the minds of some pathologists, and also in the minds of hospital management. The public, I think, find the autopsy distasteful, and there are concerns that perhaps an individual has already suffered enough and that the autopsy would inflict further suffering that the autopsy may may be of no value. And this attitude may be conveyed to the public by the clinicians who've cared for the patient. And also, perhaps, there will be strong religious or secular objections to the autopsy, uh, which uh, need to be considered and respected. Is it right to say, then, that at the moment, and I realise practice does vary across different countries, is autopsy only really used where there's some sort of uh, suspicion around the cause of death? That has become increasingly so. Um, 30 or 40 years ago, and certainly before then, the majority of autopsies were performed because they were clinically indicated and requested rather than at the request of a medical legal authority. And again, that's true worldwide. At the present time, we see that the vast majority of autopsies performed now are performed for medical legal reasons, to investigate where a cause of death is unknown or where there may be suspicions regarding the circumstances that surrounded death. And what you're going to talk about is, I mean, autopsy is important because it can reveal poor practice, poor medical practice, can't it, in a number of cases, and of course the offshoot of that is it has to be educational for medical students, particularly when we're talking about parts of the body or the apparatus which can't be done or viewed by biopsy. Absolutely, and I think this ability of the autopsy to detect errors in medical practice is one of the reasons why clinicians show some reluctance to request autopsies. We live in and work in an increasingly litigious society. And there are concerns, there's evidence through the medical literature over several decades now that there is some reluctance amongst clinicians to request autopsies, partly because they believe that in an age of modern diagnostic methods other than the autopsy, the autopsy is somewhat archaic and of no value. And also that if we do find that there was a a cause of death that was different to that suspected clinically, that they are exposed to an increased risk of litigation. 
unfortunately, perhaps there is a, a sizable body of uh, evidence in the in the world literature that has been repeated and repeated in large studies from around the world that demonstrates that causes of death as certified on death certificates um, often do not correlate well with those found at autopsy. The autopsy taken to be the um, standard method at present for determining a cause of death. And error rates vary between 10 and up to 50% in some studies, um, indicating that death certificates are perhaps not the most reliable way of determining a cause of death. And also that this is despite access to modern radiological investigations, clinical uh, diagnosis, laboratory investigations in life. We're still seeing this high error rate in the diagnosis of the cause of death clinically as opposed to autopsy practice. Now, consent seems to be a key issue here, and this is something we pick up in an, in an editorial this week that's linked to your review. Two areas of consent, I, I guess, I'd just like you to briefly mm -hmm. expand upon. Consent, if you like, between the uh, medical profession and the families of the deceased people. Presumably there are barriers there that need to be broken down. Mm -hmm. And also within the medical healthcare workers themselves, there seems to be a debate as to whether the responsibility to obtain consent is done by the pathologist or perhaps the family doctor. They're both interesting um, and somewhat challenging areas in autopsy practice at present. Certainly, I think, who asks for consent and the degree with which they convey a belief in the autopsy is likely to affect the success or failure of being able to gain consent for a clinically indicated autopsy examination. It's also been shown, however, that many clinicians are not fully aware of what an autopsy entails. How is the body opened? What exactly is done to the body in an autopsy? Are tissues removed? Are tissues retained? What is retained? And how long is it retained for? And therefore it leads into a second question then of, well, who should gain consent for a, for a clinically indicated autopsy examination? In most of medical practice now, it would be accepted practice that consent should be sought by somebody who is competent to perform the uh, investigation that the consent was being sought for. And in this regard, the autopsy is somewhat unusual because consent is usually sought at present by the clinician who cared for the patient in life, rather than the pathologist who will perform the examination. My view is that uh, we need to move to uh, a system in which there is a closer liaison between the clinician and the pathologist at this difficult time for the family when consent is being sought. The presence of the clinician, I think, is likely to be very reassuring. The they will likely already have some rapport with the relatives having been involved in the care of the patient in life. And the pathologist will be there, hopefully, or will have been able to give advice as to what sort of examination will take place, the extent of the examination that's needed, whether or not it's likely to be necessary to retain any tissue or which specific tissues may be of interest at autopsy. And I think that's also particularly important because although it's a very uncommon event now to retain whole organs at autopsy and certainly not to retain, we, we don't retain whole organs without specific consent. Some advice from the pathologist before the autopsy starts and when consent is being requested to indicate which organs may, if necessary, be retained is useful because it allows that consent to be collected at the appropriate time. So, in a nutshell, really, a lot of this is down to communication then, isn't it? It is. Um, and I think pathologists, we as a group, have been remiss at times. Clinicians also perhaps find 
autopsies of less use because they take place at a time when it's not convenient for them to get to the mortuary. I think we as a group need to make sure that we liaise with our clinical colleagues to ensure that the results will be available in the mortuary for, for them to come and see and talk about at a time that is convenient not only to the pathologist but also to the to the clinician and, and their team uh, and, to, and to make sure that we do communicate openly and freely with our colleagues to further this practice. Dr Burton, thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. A case report and its linked comment highlight how physicians need to be increasingly aware of the newer types of recreational drugs. The case report concerns a young woman who'd been to a nightclub in London who presented at hospital with reduced body temperature, high agitation and tachycardia. It was later revealed that she had consumed a drug called 1-benzylpiperazine, a drug similar to amphetamine. And a comment co-authored by our editor, Dr Richard Horton, and leading UK academics, describes how the UK government's attempt to modernise medical careers in the UK has left healthcare workers demoralised. Although, more optimistically, they point out how lessons have been learnt and no one here in the UK can doubt that MMC is now very much on the current political agenda. But let's return to the Lancet Asia Forum, which was held a few days ago, concerning cancer management in the Asia-Pacific region. I'm joined by Dr. David Collingridge, who is editor of the Lancet Oncology. David, you're just back from Singapore. Obvious question, really. Why Singapore? And more specifically, why did Lancet host a forum in Asia concerning cancer management in the Asia-Pacific region? Well, the Asia-Pacific region is of high importance for cancer management at this time. We, we're seeing predictions by um, the UICC from the American Cancer Society showing that over the next 15 to 20 years, the incidence of cancer in that part of the world is going to double. So obviously it's, it's very important that opinion leaders and leading um, experts in that part of the world get to speak about and address these issues. And you had an incredibly packed and, and varied-looking programme that was crammed into two days. It must have been exhausting, exhausting just reading the programme. Do you want to give just a couple of highlights, of examples, really, of the type of topics and issues that, that you covered at the meeting? Well, we felt it was important to cover a broad range of topics while at the meeting. And we covered the top ten cancers that caused the greatest problems in the Asia-Pacific region. So cancers such as liver cancer, stomach, oral cancers. In India, for example, oral cancer is the number one killer. Relating to tobacco use? Mostly relating to tobacco and tobacco-related products. So it's very important that we focus the, ca the, the conference around the cancers that really have significance in that part of the world. And finally, we're just about to hear from Professor Sir Michael Rawlins of NICE here in the UK. He was a bit of a coup to get to, to close your meeting, but presumably relevant because he's talking about cost-effectiveness, and that concerns all countries, richer and poorer, doesn't it? Yes, he, he really was a bit of a coup to get. His participation in the meeting was, was invaluable because clearly we're seeing increasing costs for cancer drugs in the Western world, and these costs are really prohibitive in, in developed countries but they're incredibly prohibitive to the point of making drugs inaccessible in Asia-Pacific. So his closing address was able to apply some of the NICE criteria for cost-effectiveness to the Asia-Pacific rim, and we were able to then see how many of the drugs that, that people take for granted in this part of the world would actually be available in that part of the world, and it, it's really startling results. Thanks very much, David. There's a perfect cue. Let's hear now the closing address of Professor Sir Michael Rawlins. 
So the last keynote lecture for the meeting and the last speaker for the meeting, it's a pleasure to introduce Professor Sir Michael Rawlins. Professor Rawlins is an honorary professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, University of London, and emeritus professor at the University of Newcastle-on-Tyne, where he was the professor of clinical pharmacology for many years before that. However, currently he's also the chairman of the National Institutes of Health and Clinical Excellence, otherwise known as NICE, since its formation in 1999, and he's going to address us on paying for modern cancer care. Can we afford it? I'm going to talk about uh, NICE's experience and then some extrapolation. I'm going to talk about NICE's approach to clinical cost-effectiveness, NICE's experience with anti-cancer drugs, and I'm only going to be looking at newer anti-cancer drugs, and I'm going to be looking... Uh, by, ex- uh, by extension to implications for other healthcare systems. So first of all, NICE's approach. And I take, make no apology for the need to take cost-effectiveness into account, despite what other speakers may have said. Um, we all of us have finite resources for healthcare in all our countries, and that applies to the United States of America, which spends more on healthcare than any other nation on God's earth by a very wide margin, uh, uh, to developing countries in sub-Saharan Africa. We all have to uh, accept that there are finite resources and we have to use those resources in the way that brings the best for patients that we seek to serve. Clinical effectiveness, uh, we assess, of course, from randomized controlled trials, other controlled study designs, sometimes case series, sometimes expert opinion. I have to say in the field of anti-cancer drugs, the clinical effectiveness research is generally weaker than in any other area of clinical medicine or clinical trials. And we license and authorize new anti-cancer drugs on evidence that we would not find acceptable for the heart for the treatment of heart failure. And if you wonder why I talk about heart failure, it's because the prognosis for heart failure is worse than any cancer bar lung cancer. But I'm not going to talk any more about that. I'm really going to talk about uh, uh, the economic evaluation. Uh, when we've undertaken an economic evaluation at NICE, there are three overarching principles. First of all, we take as our economic perspective the National Health Service and the personal social services. There is a case that we should take a wider economic perspective, societal, public expenditure, but we don't, and the reason we don't is that Parliament has strictly limited our economic perspective in its statutory instruments that established us to the National Health Service and the personal social services. The second is we look at cost-effectiveness. We look at value for money. We don't take into account affordability or budgetary impact. That, again, can be seen as as controversial. But uh, just to give you the difference, of course, if if I go into a shop, uh, grocers, and buy a pound of apples for $5, uh, and uh, sorry, it's a kilo of apples in Britain, uh, for $5, and I find half of them are bad, uh, it hasn't ruined me financially, but I've got flipping bad uh, um, value for money. That's what we're looking at at NICE. Uh, the question of affordability or budgetary impact is handled in other ways. And then the third thing we have to do is to balance efficiency and fairness, the balance between egalitarianism and utilitarianism. And all healthcare systems have to struggle with that tension, uh, and most of us, frankly, sort of muddle through elegantly. It's not an easy problem. Uh, It's been around since the time of Plato, and I'm afraid I'm not going to solve it this evening. 
The way we undertake our evaluations at NICE is using one of three approaches, and I'll talk about each in turn. Cost minimization, cost-effective analysis, and cost-utility analysis. Cost minimization is the economist's term for where you've got two treatments of equal effectiveness. You obviously go for uh, the, uh, the, the, the less, uh, less expensive one. Uh, it's uh, pretty easy, really, in principle, provided you can demonstrate uh, equal effectiveness. And we've had a number of instances at NICE, for example, oral versus parental treatment, uh, where uh, the uh, cost minimization uh, has uh, been helpful and, by and large, cost minimization is cost-saving. Unfortunately, however, we rarely have that luxury at NICE, and in most instances, the new treatment is more costly and but claims to be more effective than current practice. One way of looking at this problem is to undertake what is strictly cost-effectiveness analysis, looking at the effectiveness measured in natural units. Uh, and we have uh, a few occasions done this. It's, uh, for example, uh, cost per centimetre additional height gain for the use of growth hormone children with growth hormone deficiency. And particularly in cancer, the cost per additional life years gained and the cost per progression-free life year. The problem with this is that technique is it doesn't allow you to compare the value for money of one procedure for one condition with another procedure for another, bearing in mind uh, that, of course, a lot of what we do in medicine, we hope, improves the quality of life as well as the longevity. So our preferred approach is in relationship to cost-utility analysis. And this is uh, the cost per increase in health-related quality of life usually gathered from the change in health utility uh, multiplied by the time it's enjoyed, taking into account both the indirect and direct costs, and we discount them at 6% per annum. Uh, that's because the British economy is discounted at that rate and it would be inappropriate for us to do uh, anything else. We, uh, from that, derive the incremental uh, uh, effectiveness cost per quality, the ISA. Our utility assessments are, generally speaking, gathered from, either directly or indirectly, from what's known as the Eurocall 5D, uh, a quality of life uh, assessment uh, based on physical mobility, ability to self-care, ability to carry out activities of daily living, absence of pain and discomfort, and absence of anxiety. And it is expressed as a value naught for his dead one is perfect health. To give you an example of how we do this, a non-cancer example, say hip replacement improves the quality of life, say, by 0.3 on this scale. The cost of a hip replacement, say about £5,000, produces 0.3 units in health gain. It lasts about 20 years, i.e. you get about six collies. Uh, the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, the ISA, is 5,000 divided by six, uh, and uh, uh, it comes out uh, £833 uh, per collie. Uh, and if you discount that, it comes more like about £600. So that's the broad approach we take. The problem is where we put the, the boundary between cost ineffective and cost effective. It has been suggested by some people that this boundary should be a rigid threshold. Uh, there are several problems with that approach. The first is there's no empirical basis for where the threshold should lie, and this is a really serious problem both in the United Kingdom but also internationally. It would be inflexible. 
it would mean that there would be no question that you could alter your priorities for some particular reason. It would imply efficiency has an absolute priority over equity. It would imply utilitarianism rules. And, of course, it would be completely anti-competitive. Uh, everyone would come in just below the threshold and you would destroy price competition. Rather than have a th rigid threshold, NICE, we've adopted a case-by-case -case approach based partly on the degree of uncertainty of the ISA because various assumptions will change it, on the innovative nature of the technology, on wider societal interests, by reference to previous appraisals where but obviously we need to have some consistency, and also special features of the condition related to its prognosis, equity issues, and so on. So instead of having a rigid threshold, we have a, uh, a, a sort of log-dose response relationship where the probability of rejection rises in this sigmoid fashion uh, in relationship to the quality, the cost per quality or life here gained. The critical thing, of course, are these inflections here, and what monetary value do we place on them? Well, um, the judgment of the economic community in Britain is that uh, those interventions that cost less than $30,000 per year that, uh, at uh, purchasing price parity, which is about, uh, about £20,000, should be, generally speaking, regarded as cost-effective. Uh, above a threshold of around about $45,000, about £30,000 uh, per quality, uh, there will have to be increasing reasons why it regard, something is regarded as cost-effective. Uh, we have gone as far as uh, nearly £50,000. That would be about $75,000, uh, but that's on, on rare occasions. So generally speaking, our thresholds are somewhere in that range, uh, but sometimes going a little bit higher. Now, what's our experience with anti-cancer drugs? The... Uh, we have done a, a appraisals on 33 anti-cancer drugs in relationship to specific indications. 22 of them, we've recommended that they're used within the National Health Service. They'll increase costs, but we reckon that they're good value for money, reasonable value for money. We have uh, recommended five on the basis of cost saving by cost minimization. We've refused three on grounds of uh, cost ineffectiveness and refused two on grounds of clinical ineffectiveness. This shows the uh, range, and you can see that uh, uh, both uh, cetuximab uh, and uh, uh, avastin for colorectal, cancer, for, for colorectal cancer were considered by us to be cost ineffective. Its use in the National Health Service, the use of those two drugs, and fludarabine uh, in relationship to lymphatic leukemia, would deprive other patients, many other patients, of cost-effective interventions, and therefore... We said no. These decisions are hard, painful, and sometimes controversial. But they have to be done and untaken in the interests of all those people in Britain who rely on the National Health Service for their care. The budgetary impact has been in the order of uh, over 300,000 in terms of increasing costs, a small cost saving. But overall, uh, we've increased the uh, expenditure per year by about 300 million pounds. That's about getting on for 450 uh, 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 million US dollars. So we're not saving money. We're increasing investment in healthcare, but we're doing it in a way which we believe and hope is fair to everybody, not just those with cancer who seek their care from the health service. 
So what are the implications for the Asia-Pacific region? The question of the thresholds that separate cost-ineffectiveness from cost-effectiveness has been looked at by WHO. And on evidence grounds that actually they don't, they, they don't indicate what they are, and we know from the literature actually that it's a judgment, WHO judges that in relationship to per capita GDP, uh, interventions costing less than uh, the GDP per quality or quite life year gained should generally be regarded as in unequivocally cost-effectiveness, cost-effective. Those that are three times the GDP should be regarded as unequivocally cost-ineffective. And those that in the middle range are possibly cost-effective and possibly cost-ineffective and need a case-by-case approach. The reasons, as I said, for using the GDP are shrouded in mystery, and WHO doesn't actually say what they are. The fact that they closely correspond to the sort of levels we use at NICE, I'm sure, is purely fortuitous. Now, if one does an extrapolation to what we've done at NICE uh, to the Asia-Pacific region, uh, I have to tell you there are a couple of uh, limitations to this approach. Firstly, the utility, the, the utility estimates based on the Euroqual 5D, which is what ours is, may not necessarily apply in, this, in, in, in Asia and the Pacific region. And one has to be rather careful about this. So I noticed from a poster outside that the study in, in China has suggested that they are very reasonable. Uh, furthermore, as other speakers have already mentioned today, the years enjoyed and otherwise the, the benefits and maybe a little bit different for all sorts of factors, pharmacogenetic and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, although there may be quantitative differences, I suspect qualitatively my conclusions are right. We have 23 drugs at NICE for which we have clear evidence of their incremental cost-effectiveness ratio. Based on that, there is no doubt at all that many countries adopting a WHO definition of unequivocally cost-effective would not be able to provide them. They are, have too low incomes. And it includes countries like Bangladesh, India, China, Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia. None of the drugs we have looked at at NICE would become unequivocally cost-effective. For a few countries, Japan, Singapore, uh, Australia, 10 uh, of these new 30, these new 23 drugs would be regarded as unequivocally cost-effective. Looking at the other end of the scale, even applying this somewhat generous upper limit, uh, there are many countries uh, who, if they were to adopt these technologies, would be almost certainly depriving other people in their countries of cost-effective health care. And I'm talking again Bangladesh, Vietnam, India... Sri Lanka, Indonesia. And it's only New Zealand, Japan, Singapore, Australia who can perhaps even consider on economic grounds investing in these sorts of treatments. What are the solutions? Well, many of these countries will have to deny access. That is one solution. And of course, use the money that they are saving, as it were, in far more effective, cost-effective forms of healthcare, particularly prevention. 
Second alternative is a reduction in global prices. I doubt that that will happen. Thirdly, is differential prices. We have seen the emergence of differential pricing for HIV and AIDS drugs uh, in some parts of the world. But I don't hold out too many promises. And some sort of overt subsidies in the way that the Gates Foundation is contemplating. Or even perhaps uh, some combination of these. A gloomy story. I'm sorry for that, but I'm grateful for the opportunity of speaking today. Thank you very much indeed. Professor Sir Michael Rawlins concluding this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.